and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Hello everyone, hi Tom. Hello Ben, how are you? Yeah, good. It's, um, I think this is the first time in best part of, well it must be five or six weeks where it's just the two of us and we do not have a guest with us, I think. Well, it's happened very infrequently that this has happened over summer. We've had some really good guests. We've had some fantastic guests, and they're, they're always um, uh, fun to sort of work... Well, not fun sometimes, unfortunately. Uh, it reminds us of the state of the free speech world in the, sort of, um, in the literary world, the creative world, in the sports world. There's really nothing that, that escapes at the moment. So um, it reminds us, I think, of how important this battle is. I saw something on Twitter um, the other day, just th- thinking about our conversation with Sybil Ruth last week um, and with Gillian Phillip and some of the conversations we've been having about the literary world. Um, and somebody had posted the, um, the submission requirements of a literary agency of the kind of things that they were looking for. And it's entirely... I have to find the exact quote, actually. I mean, it's worth, it's worth mm. reading in full. Um, but, but it's all about identity and the protected characteristics baked into the Equality Act and lived experience and the, the very fashionable trend now of auto-fiction, writing about your own life um, and fictionalising it. And it all has to have some kind of um, minority or disability or identity or gender or sexuality dimension to it. And I don't, I don't have a problem. Obviously, that there is a market for, for work like that. So I don't object to the fact that it exists. But the trouble is, once you start looking around and poking around in the literary world and looking at the submissions requirements that and the things that agents are looking for, you know, you start to get the feeling that there's only one flavour of ice cream on offer. It becomes a very monochromatic lens, doesn't it, Ben? It, it, ironically yeah. enough, where it's meant to be about diversity and, and, and variety, it becomes exactly the opposite. Um, and I am constantly surprised at how this has already happened. It's not something we're fearing might happen in the future. As you say, you can pull the policies out. Um, and that was the policy for a, a publishing company. Is that right, Ben? It was a literary agency. Um, mm. And this is a, a, a sort of pet peeve of mine. And we've spoken about it a little bit before. So forgive me, rep- forgive me repeating myself a little. Um, but there are so many gatekeepers in the publishing world. And even without the culture war that we're all now um embroiled in or or, or which is the background to to all these things you have to get an agent then you have to get a deal with the publisher then you have to get shops to agree to sell your book and then you have to get the shop assistants to actually put the books on the shelves and so even if you get through the first two or three of those steps which are extremely difficult things to do um, you then get to the position where the, the librarian or the shop assistant in Waterstones is just either not stocking the book or making it very difficult to find. Um, so, uh, gosh, I don't know what the problem. I don't know what the solution to this problem is. I mean, it, it sort of comes back to the thing we're always kicking around about whether you need new institutions, whether we need an entirely new, um, you know, raft of, of publishing imprints and literary agencies. And I think there has there has to be. Um, competition there has to be some breadth of opinion and ideological diversity um which is three years on from the summer of black lives matter there's no real sign of that diversity in the in the kind of legacy publishing world i think and um certainly sybil's experience and jillian's experience attest to that and go and listen to those episodes if you've not heard them already i thought they were really interesting well pendulums isn't it it's about pendulums yeah. swinging uh i've heard a lot of people saying that the pendulum may be swinging back already or, or about to swing um and uh, my perspective on that is it's who you talk to and when people going yeah. through an employment tribunal or people going through a dismissal at work it doesn't feel like the pendulum swung at all but if you're working on this all the time then maybe but i mean i thought we were over the gender critical um hump if you will of of cases about a quarter ago but there's it's pretty relentless in our casework at the moment ben from what i can see that the number of cases coming in is still around about a third relating to gender critical and um the, the number of cases really hasn't stopped or started to go down in any way and while we're, while we're talking shop um, on, on the cases team over summer, you might expect with universities and schools being closed that 
um, perhaps there'd be a little bit of a quieter period. And in fact, you showed me this data last week that we've been about 80% on top of what we'd normally expect for much of, I think, late July and August. So it has been extraordinarily busy. I think we've got 103 live cases as of this morning. So 103 people that the Free Speech Union is helping. Um, and that will be across every sector of, um, you know, from, from publishing to universities, NHS, teachers, all the rest of it. And we've worked that down, Ben. Uh, I think yeah. about yeah, a week ago, a couple of weeks ago, it was, it was as you say, it was right up at 130. And at one point, it was nudging 140 open cases. Yeah. Um, so it really has been a, a very, very busy July and August. Um, so, yeah. No, there's no relenting. There's no relenting in the free speech wars at the moment. And you've opened up a new front, Tom. You've been doing another <laughs> of your reports on uh, something called carbon literacy, which is another topic That's that right. I think lots of people probably, or a phrase lots of people, never have heard of before. Um, so, do you want to do you want to talk us through that? I know you're very mm. keen to talk about it. Um, so, what is carbon literacy? Mm. What's it got to do with free speech? And why is it a problem in your view? It's an interesting one. It, 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 like a lot of our listeners, I expect, I hadn't heard this this term up to a few weeks ago, and it, it crept into our casework um, uh, about about five, six, seven weeks ago. And in essence, we then decided, well, well we need to find this out. What is what is carbon literacy training? It, it all goes back to an organisation, a charitable organisation called the Carbon Literacy Trust. Uh, they trade as and are known as the Carbon Literacy Project. And they're very similar, or there's certainly a lot of similarities with the B Corp work that we did a, a few weeks prior to this, whereby it, it's a charity and there's a fair amount of certification involved. And, and with the Carbon Literacy Trust, there's two types of certification. There's certification of individuals and there's certification of companies. But let me just step back from it what do we mean by carbon literacy training? Essentially, it's a, it's a one-hour, sorry, it's a one-day course, if you're an individual, whereby the first, the morning tends to be finding out about the science, finding out about what's happening in the world, uh, the warming that, that, that's happening and that most scientists agree has happened, has happened since the Industrial Revolution and indeed before. And uh, then the afternoon, it's about, well, what do we do about it? Um, I think there's the a lot of the carbon literacy training videos talk about the sort of lull in the middle of the day. By the time you get to lunchtime, you're feeling very depressed about the state of uh, the climate. But then it's about trying to be positive uh, and trying to say, well, these are the good things we can do. These are the things that are in our control. There's no point uh, panicking. So it's not a, it's not a, um, it's all, not all doom and gloom by any means. It's, it's by, so, this, so this this isn't what, what, what worries us from a free speech perspective. That's a perfectly reasonable course for people to go on and get a lot from. Uh, the issue comes, not really individuals going on the course, it, it's more when people are in an employment situation and their employer may be wanting to become a carbon literate organization. And there's two elements of that which worry us. The first is that in order to get the top-notch carbon literate organization certification, at least 80% of employees need individually to become carbon literate. In other words, go through this one-day course, learn about the science, and learn about what they can do um, to, 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 to do something in their own lives. And there's kind of two actions each individual is meant to do. One, of, one which is an action they can take to reduce their carbon footprint, and one is an action that they can take with other people. And the concern, so the first concern is that if 80% in, in an organization have to become carbon literate, then that could lead to people on the course needing to kind of sign up to something they don't always believe in. Because although, as I said before, it's a fairly, it sounds fairly innocuous, a lot of it is bundled up in the language of the carbon emergency, it's bundled up in the language of net zero. So it does come from what I think many of us would think is a political angle. And if you're in a workplace, you're told to go on this course, and they want to get 80% of the people certified in the organization, that could be very tricky and starts to have echoes 
of what we talk about every week, EDI, equity, diversity, inclusion, people being forced to say things that they don't necessarily believe in because they're worried otherwise there'll be repercussions. Of course, this will vary from organization to organization, and some organizations will do it, and it won't be in any way coercing people. But we know, we know what happens, Ben, and, and I think that, that's why we got concerned when we started to see the ambition here. Just to translate this across into a different political issue, let's say there was something um, about the UK deficit and national debt, and there was a description of the UK as having a national debt emergency, which would not be far wrong at all. Um, and then an employee well, not, not was far made... wrong at the moment, to be honest. <laughs> no, no. Um, <laughs> and an employee was made to go along to national debt. I suppose it would be numeracy rather than literacy training. Um, and they were they were taught about uh, the, the the horrendous consequences that are going to play out over the next generation or two because of the UK's debt per. Mm. Um, now that course could stick to the facts but if it started to approach the issue of the UK's national debt which is something that everyone would agree is a huge problem from the point of view of saying the only way to solve this is with tax cuts and reducing spending to try and stimulate the economy or if it came at it from the opposite political perspective I think most people would accept that that's something that an employer has absolutely no business doing to approach something that even though everyone agree, or many people overwhelming majority of people would agree is a problem to approach it from a partisan perspective so that is that what's going on here where they're taking something where I think the polling would say 74, 75% of, of people would say climate change is something they are, they are very or somewhat worried about. So they're taking that issue, but then they're approaching it in a very um, particular way, which of course is what we see with equality, diversity and inclusion issues, um, where it's not just being engaged in solving a problem. It's that you have to agree to solve the problem in this way that's been very narrowly prescribed. It's it's that it's the politicisation of another issue. It, it's there are other ways of looking at that, and and as we say in the front page of the paper, in the summary of the paper, we say we may well all agree proportionately that the temperatures have gone up, but we do no, not by any means agree as to what we should do about that, or what the solution is, or even if there needs to be action taken and there's a whole spectrum as we know all the way from extinction rebellion and just stop oil on the one hand through to shrugging our shoulders and saying there's really nothing to worry about on the other and then this training comes in and however much it kind of presents itself as uh, we all want to get together behind it it's almost like a sort of war effort idea you know surely we all want to do something. Well, not necessarily, actually. Uh, some of us do believe that this is, this is veering very quickly into the world of politics. And, you know, for example, north of the border, one of the um, organisations that does the training is called um, Keep Scotland Beautiful. Uh, and it's a great organisation uh, wanting to, to protect the wonderful wilds of Scotland and, and everything that's great about, about um our world north of the border. However, they actually don't call it climate literacy training. They call it on their on their homepage, they call it climate emergency training. So already you can see, just via the nomenclature, yeah. the politicization of the course. And again, if I signed up for this and I went to my local council and said I'd like to do some climate literacy training, fine, not a problem. Not a problem at all. But it's when I'm an employee and I've got an employer who has a goal, who has an objective of getting 80% kind of certified. That's when it gets tricky. And another thing that we worry about, that we saw when we went into the detail of this, is, is that to get silver, so when an organization wants to become a carbon literate organization, yeah. to get silver, gold, or platinum, uh, there's an expectation that carbon literacy will in some shape or form go into people's performance management, their objectives, their goals. Now, the one thing I know about goals and objectives is that they do tend to lead to pay and rations. They, there is a link with pay and rations. And yet again, you know, different companies will do this in different ways. It's by no means guaranteed if you, if you add a fifth goal 
or a sixth goal that says you've got to be putting your carbon literacy training into practice, that people really pay much attention to it. You know, it might be that last goal. People don't. But in some organizations, it may well mean that people's promotions and that people's pay and rations uh, are affected, are impacted. And if they don't sing along to the song of the climate emergency in the way that their employer is expecting their employees to do, then they'll get into trouble. And that is, that is what got us concerned. So, and it's not a hypothetical concern for two reasons. The first is that we see this all the time with equity, diversity, and inclusion. The wonderful yeah. words actually turn into a speech code, and we know that uh, one in 20 of our cases go directly back to forced EDI training and people, people tripping up in the office because of it. And the other is because we have had a member come to us and say, we went through this carbon literacy training, I raised alternative views, and now I am concerned. Now I am genuinely concerned because it didn't land well with the trainers. And I think that's the, that's the worry because you never quite know where that leaves you. Are you going to get called into a meeting, have another discussion? have another conversation so uh so that that's that's what we're concerned but i love your analogy of sort of being treated about you know talked talked to about the national debt it's like the you know britain in the 1970s when we went off cap in hand to the imf yeah uh, and some you know all school children suddenly are meant to worry about the national debt and the fact that we're now borrowing from the imf having won the Se second world war we're borrowing for borrowing from the imf i wouldn't be worried only about my milk <laughs> no. that, that was taken away by 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 mrs thatcher I'll be worried about, I'll be terrified about, I mean, I also remember having to go and get candles because of all the blackouts at that time, but but also having to worry about the country going bankrupt. I, I'm not sure I should have had to worry about well, that as a six-year-old. Th there's, an, there's an agreed core set of facts around climate change that, I don't know, I'm pulling this figure out of my hat, but that, say 90% of people would agree about. And then there's probably an outer ring where aspects of science is still being contested um, and then there's a huge once you depart from science there's a huge swathe of debate then about uh, the response and what if any that should look like um, and who mm. should bear the burden of that and uh, who's going to pay for it and ultimately whether the actions of a small middling power in North, off northern Europe are actually going to make any difference compared to the emissions of China and the United States and all the rest of it. We know these points. Um, but what, what, what seems to me to be the trouble with this is that the, within that swathe of, of political and, and some scientific debate, you will have people with a, with a huge spectrum of different perspectives on this issue. So I would probably fall into the category of thinking um, this is a problem and some form of concerted global action is required, but it's going to be something that ultimately is solved with technology. You can't put the genie of industrialization back in the bottle. Um, uh, but from what you're saying, if I expressed that view, if I said to somebody, well, actually, what the UK does is is completely irrelevant, um, and this is something that's going to have to be solved by nuclear, by carbon capture, by whatever, I'm not a scientist... Um, but if that were my political view and I expressed that, um, I would then be putting myself in a position where I perhaps would be in a minority of people attending one of these courses, perhaps a minority of one. And I, I think mm. the point the point you made about, you know, you might be summoned into a meeting because you're not you're not then hitting one of your performance targets. Um, you know, that, that I think that could be a real danger. That is a real danger. Certainly it is for equality diversity inclusion and equity as it's now called um but it doesn't have to be that overt does it because it could just be that mm. you're um you, you fall out of favor that you're passed over for promotion that you just are perceived in a slightly different way that perhaps you're seen as a bit of a crank or, or an oddball um or, or in some way undesirable because you have a view that that is just not quite the fashionable one not quite the mainstream view um well, that's how the office works yeah, yeah I, I, I can testify to that. Having sat in, I've gone behind the curtain and sat in umpteen numbers of performance and development uh, meetings where you genuinely will have the conversation about, you know, is this person difficult? You know, and, and there's that subjective element to every assessment, every performance, every promotion. Well, are they one of us? 
Do they fit yeah, are they one of culture? Are they going to yeah. spit? We, especially if we're turning around saying one day they, we want them to sit around this table with us. And most of the time you're saying, how do we get them there? How do we, you know, how do we sort of maybe sandpaper some of the rough edges if they're five years away? And we would always say, we would classify people as, are they five years away from being on the executive team? Are they two years away from being on the executive team? Could they, could they go straight on to succession plan now? Uh, and how do we, what training do they need? What, what, how do we shape them? And, but also, you know, a lot of that is so subjective and if they have raised their hand and, and asked awkward questions or ruffled a few feathers around the office, and not, we're not talking EDI and, and carbon literacy training here, but we're just talking about have they ruffled feathers? Do they yeah. get on with people? How do they deal with difficult situations? If you are an executive, you are going to have to deal with stressful and difficult, stressful situations and difficult people internally and externally. How well adapted are they to that? And are they peacemakers? And so if you decide you don't want to be co-opted in EDI training or you don't want to be co-opted or coerced in uh, carbon literacy training, it, it, it might not land very well. It may well not land very well. And if you're ambitious, you're effectively going to be in a position where you have to, to, sort, of, to sort of lie, in effect. Um, and even something as simple as Rishi Sunak said that this is the Prime Minister. He said that we're going to give licenses to, and I think it was North Sea Oil drilling. Some, we, we, we're going to, be, in order to become more energy independent, yeah. Yeah. we're going to give licenses north of the border. Uh, it's going to lead to jobs. It's going to lead to more energy security, but it's more fossil fuels. Now, I, I suspect that could, just saying that you might fall on the side of the debate of saying, I, I think that's not a bad idea, after everything that's happened with the Ukraine and Russia and prices of gas and oil and we're not quite in energy independent and we've been dependent upon you know, liquefied natural gas from the US, whatever, whatever, the, whatever the background is, you might, if you said, I think that's not a bad idea, you might end up being, as you say, in a minority of one and just find that you don't get that promotion or the promotion's delayed or... Or, or however it plays out. And so you just go silent. And that's that's your free speech. We've spoken before about, we've had a, a conversation about the introduction of political views into workplaces. And I can see very clearly the case for a manager just saying, actually, these issues, be it climate change or abortion or whatever, are so divisive, they're nothing to do with our job running a stationary shop. Um, please don't discuss them at work. Whatever you say in private or on your Facebook page, at her, you know that's fine, that's your business. But please don't talk about it at work. I think that's quite a reasonable view. But instead, in workplaces, on all sorts of issues now, a growing number of issues, as your report has demonstrated, it's not that neutral position. Instead, it's come to work and politics is going to be in the workplace and you are going to be expected to agree with this particular sure. view on all of these issues. And even asking a question, even asking a question, not, not even explicitly saying this is the view that my office is taking or my trainer is taking on, on whether it's an EDI issue or whether it's carbon literacy. This is the view in this training space. I'm asking a question. Just asking that question can mean you don't pass the training or you get that little mark next to your name or you get pulled aside. So it's not even necessarily putting your own view across. It's just asking, you know, questioning that monolithic single view that's that's crept into the office. Yeah. And Tom, how exactly wide how widespread is carbon literacy training? Do we have a sense of that? Ah, uh, that's a really important question. We are hoping that we we've, we've kind of written this report fairly early on in the life cycle of the phenomenon. But forewarned is forearmed, and. The number of carbon literacy organizations is only stands at 191 at the moment. And that compares with B Corps that are heading rapidly towards 2000. So it's about 10% the size of the B Corp phenomenon in the UK at the moment. And the number of carbon literate citizens stands at, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but 
Yeah, it's 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 less than two thousand. Uh, sorry, it's sixty-seven thousand. <laughs> so it's less than seventy thousand. And there's a goal I read in one of the uh, reports to get up to a million carbon literate citizens as soon as possible, and it is growing exponentially. And so one of the call-outs, really, to listeners and to our members and anyone else, um, is to let us know uh, what your experience of carbon literacy training is, both positive and negative. You know, if you if 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 you think we've got this really wrong, and, and that, that carbon literacy is is not something we should be worrying about in the same way as EDI, let us know. Uh, and 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 we can have a we can have a look at that. But if you if you're asked to go on it, or if you're asked to uh, if you have an experience, you, you, you and you want to let us know, that, then do that as well, because hopefully we we forewarn people at this stage. I think we're going to see it grow and grow over the next 24 months, and uh, that will be interesting to see whether we see more of it in our casework. I, I do wonder if somebody working at air traffic control had been on one of these uh, one of these courses, Tom, and decided that bringing down every flight in the UK would be a, an excellent excellent mark on their performance review. And, uh, that would probably be the second action. That would be the second action. You have to do an action involving other people. So perhaps this individual decided, yeah, we'll we'll we'll, we'll close British airspace, and that will be me doing something with everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> We're laughing now. It's going to be a positive action. You know, okay. I, I am trying to be fair here to the course. And as I say, if I were signing up to this as an individual interested in the topic, I'm sure it's a very, very, very good course. If I'm doing that, the whole issue is in, in, a, in a workplace environment yeah. where there's that element of compulsion and there's that key element of bringing it into sort of performance and development. That is where we are concerned. Um, and, and there's a broader question here, because we, we talk about equity, diversity, and inclusion. Now we've talked about carbon literacy training. We've talked about B Corps and these certific certification organizations, which are just sprouting up everywhere, everywhere. Whichever, when you, whether you look left, right, in the middle, um, I read... Uh, over the weekend, there's something called active bystander training as well, which is all about what you do if you see something horrible going on in the street, uh, whether yep. that's sort of someone being treated badly in all sorts of ways, sexism or, or, or homophobia, whatever it might be, and what you should do as a bystander. Again, very, very positive. Uh, but it, whichever way I look, I keep finding these these new training courses or certification schemes or whatever they are. So if, if there are listeners out there who 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 just let us know if if you know of any that you're worried about, um, we 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 are always interested in 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 getting to the bottom of what's going on with some of these. Well, it's good to nip these things in in the bud at the earliest possible moment. I, I was just thinking, should we go on to talk about the case of our member Al Gado now? Um, it, it's on, it's on yeah. a, a different topic, um, but a similar theme. So she was a law academic for 10 years at the Open University um, and uh, is now crowdfunding her legal case. So uh, I, I've spoiled the ending of the story, which is to say that she's no longer an academic working at the Open University. Um, and this is nothing to do with carbon literacy training or the environment. This goes back to uh, gender identity theory and uh, the distortion as she saw it, um, of teaching and indeed of marking for uh, law courses uh, around the, the, the diktats and liturgy of, of gender identity. Um, and I think, it's, I think this probably is the crowdfunder that has rocketed up fastest. We've done a lot of crowdfunding for our members to fight legal battles over the last few years. Um, and... I think it's been online for about nine days and it's just shy of £60,000. Um, and this is a case that has attracted a lot of attention, um, I think quite rightly. So I, I was speaking to Albert last year um, when she first contacted the Free Speech Union about the situation she was in. Um, and, and some of the dimensions of her case, I think, are particularly shocking, even by the standards of, of the sorts of things that we all too often very frequently see. Um, and one of the, I mean, I mean, there's so much here, Tom, but but one of the points was mm. about, um, so there's all the, all the guff about liberating the curriculum um, and teaching her students to use the preferred pronouns of offenders. Um, 
And so all of this stuff was going on. I'm sure all of this will be wearily familiar to anybody listening to this who works in academia or if you're a student or if your children are university students now. Um, and so she pushed back against this and uh, was active in saying, well, hang on, this is distorting what the law actually says. Um, people have a broad range of views about these issues and so on. Um, and eventually she's lost her job, as I said, and she's now in this position of having to go um, to an employment tribunal. Um, and I think, although the two issues are, are completely dissimilar in, in, in the topic, we see again the same thing where politics has entered her workplace in a particularly sensitive way, given that she is training, teaching law students who will who will be the, the solicitors and the barristers and the judiciary of the future. Um, and even in that context, she's been expected to promote and endorse a particular worldview, a worldview that mm. most people actually would find at least partly objectionable. Well, I, I was watching a, uh, a YouTube video by uh, a professor, uh, doctor, or I think it's doctor, uh, Dr. Eric, Eric spelled E-R-E-K, Smith. He's a rhetoric, he's a lecturer in rhetoric uh, in the US. And he was talking about this diversity, equity, and inclusion. And uh, he, he himself is black, and he was a trainer. He was a diversity trainer. And he talks about things like the diversity walk when you step, you step forward one step if you come from a broken home, you step forward another step. If you, uh, if you are a woman, you step forward another step. And so you, you see the disparity in, in where people are coming from. And he said that ultimately this lens of looking at race or looking at sex and gender or looking at looking at all of these different aspects through this single lens, this sort of grievance, grievance studies in US universities lens, is doing exactly the opposite of what it's trying to do. It's dividing people. And it's causing people not to speak with each other anymore. Because if you're taught that microaggressions are a real thing and everywhere, you're not going to talk to the people who might get upset. Or you'll, you'll be too scared to go out and and make friends with them. Because if you make friends with them, then then you're going to get into trouble at some point. So you stick with your own. You stick with yep. your own group. You stay in your lane. And that's tragic. Because that means that all the wonderful things of being truly diverse, of having lots of different gifts, lots of different backgrounds, and lots of different life experiences in the best sense of that word, is lost. And when... This case with, with Amit Gadot, as you say, is in the open university of all places, uh, is, is, is happening as well. That's happening with the lecturers as well as the students. It's just fragmenting everybody completely. It's shutting people up. It's shutting them down. People are, be are becoming ghettoized within their groups because they, they don't want to move to the next group because it's too dangerous. And it's having exactly the opposite. And unconscious bias training, they say, is does exactly the same thing. That actually it has um, worsened people's attitude to race. If you do want to read more about her case, do go and have a look. It's on Crowd Justice. It's also been in our newsletter and it's plastered over our social media. Uh, this is a really, really important case to win. Um, and there are so many different components to it, but... Um, it, it, at its heart, it deals with questions of academic freedom. Um, and if that falls, if that fails, then the the ideological slant in universities is only going to become more and more skewed. Um, and it is a very important case. So so do please go and have a look. Um, and obviously, we're, we're hopeful that that we will win this case for her. She's being represented by Akira Reindorf Casey, um, who uh, is a very, very big name in the uh, gender critical world, quite rightly. Um, and we're hopeful. So thank you so much to everybody who's donated already. As I said, £60,000 in nine days is absolutely extraordinary. Um, and I think as well, you know, if you're, if you're putting in £10 anonymously into a crowdfunder like this, and you don't feel that you're able or in a position to, to, to push back against some of these things uh, in your own life, in your own work, um, you know, a relatively small donation like that 
very quickly stacks up. Um, and it, it will mean in Albert's case that she has fantastic legal representation. So it does make a difference. One of the questions, Ben, that I've seen in some of the comments around the Alma Gaddo case is that we now have the Freedom of Speech Act, the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Act, in place, in force, in the land. And yet, we're seeing, uh, as you say, a criminologist from, open, from the Open University go through what she's going through simply for questioning decolonization or, or, or the particular outworking of gender identity identity what difference if any then or is it or is it a timing issue but what difference if any has that new law made it's a timing issue um so these events took place last year um where when all all this was going on um and she was pushing back against gender identity and the way in which it was distorting the curriculum i think i think probably the other thing that, that that act does is is change the mood music and just as with equality, particularly around trans, we've seen so many HR policies and NHS policies and university policies which take protection for trans people from harassment and discrimination, which is, of course, not something that's being contested. That That's reasonable and right. But it takes that and it runs with it and it goes far beyond what the the law requires which again in itself isn't objectionable but in so doing it does something that is profoundly objectionable because it starts to conflict with the rights of gender critical employees or service users or students or or other staff Um, and you get these conflicts that are that are working their way through through the system so this could be as important as the Maya Forstater case in that, in that. I mean, the Maya Forstater case established gender critical views um, as being worthy of protection under the Equality Act um, and, and being a philosophical belief that is protected by the Equality Act. I think because of the, the case's importance for academic freedom, and as I've said a moment ago, even if you're not an academic and you're not, you, you don't work at university, you're not a student, I think academic freedom is one of those pillars that holds free speech up for everybody else because we will very quickly feel the effect in a generation's time if the polarization um or polarization is the wrong word if the ideological skew in universities continues and gets worse um in 15 years the gen the the, the generational divide will be even starker so i think this is very important not just for those of you who are listening who work in academia um but for the public generally would be my argument. And we're seeing it in the workplace, aren't we? With the yeah. first or the, the tail end of the millennials are there, the beginning of the Gen Zs are there. Uh, it occurs to me it may all be on Generation Alpha. <laughs> Is that what they're called? <laughs> we're that. about six at the moment. <laughs> it seems a little unfair <laughs> to leave it all on them. <laughs> my, so when my three-year-old gets home, I'll be having a very serious talk with her about her responsibility to uphold <laughs> the future of the country. Yeah. Uh, no pressure. It's on your slender shoulders. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> oh dear. Well, speaking of protecting Western values, um, Tom. Yes, that's indeed. not too much poor segue. That, that that brings us on to. Um, well, I think this is a pretty grim story. Um, this is yeah. the story of uh, the Danish government, which um, said last week. Um, that there is going to be legislation in Denmark, it's proposing legislation to make it illegal to burn the Quran in public places. Now, I think it's worth saying at the outset that having read the Quran and, to be blunt, not having found much in there of uh, great moral worth or merit, I would find it offensive for somebody to burn the Quran. I would find it offensive if somebody's burn any book. It's something that is, I think, inextricably linked with the worst episodes of European history. So I find Quran burning offensive. That said, there has to be the right for people to express their opposition to the teaching of Islam or to the political imposition of Islam across society, what we call Islamism. And I think this is a dangerous infringement of that and it's a surrender after well more than 30 years now since the satanic verses 
and numerous cartoon controversies, as they're called, in the intervening years. And I think it's something that will be looked back on and deeply regretted. I agree with you, Ben. I think um, <laughs> we don't have blasphemy laws. And we've spoken about this on many occasions, but we don't have blasphemy laws. They've been repealed. And the sense with this, as you say, is that it's a one-way street. And it started with the fatwa on Salman Rushdie in the 80s, whereby there were just enough people in the establishment who, who cast doubt on the right of Salman Rushdie to write that book, The Satanic Verses, which is extremely tame, certainly by, by comparison with, with burning a Quran. But the doubt was sufficient to cast a very, very long shadow and to begin to entrench an attitude towards special treatment of one religion over, over other religions. And we've, as you say, I think we've only seen that street go one way. We, it, it, it's like as soon as you go through the next junction, there's no going back. There's no, there's a complete, it's not just a red light to go back. It's, it, the, the gates have closed and, and come down and been padlocked shut. There's no reclaiming that sense of freedom and that sense of free speech around Islam, around the Prophet Muhammad, around the Quran. And so it may seem very sensible to start to, to, to put a stop to something. Some of, the, some of these groups who are burning, burning the Quran are extremely unsavory. Uh, and I can imagine examples where there is an immediate uh, concern of the police for public safety and keeping the, keeping the peace and that sort of thing. And, and so, you know, the, the police would need to step in by virtue of the laws they already have, actually, to keep the peace. Um, but to to take blasphemy laws and reintroduce them, as you say, we will rue the day that happens. And of course, there's a lot of politics going on here, as ever. The, the Organization for Islamic Cooperation, for example, has been trying to get a worldwide uh, blasphemy law of some kind in relation to the Quran uh, in force. So there's that going on. There's, there's deals that might be at stake, international agreements and international arrangements that might be at stake. So there's, there are other strings that are being pulled here. But at root, at root, I think this is a real free speech issue. And I think we have to be able to say we don't have blasphemy laws. And in a country that doesn't have blasphemy laws, it is just a book, just like the Bible. You know, if you wrote a book, Ben, and I took it and burnt it in front of you. I don't think I'd be invited round to the Jones uh, household. But um, I, I think that um, you probably wouldn't call the police on me. I'd, I'd be deeply offended, but I would not call the police and I would not attempt to have you... And it's a different Tom. thing. You know, it's not... The Islamic... Um, obviously, there are billions and billions of followers of Islam and the Quran is a, is a revered book. So it's, any analogy we make isn't going to be perfect. But at the end of the day, we don't have blasphemy laws. And this is not the time to be reintroducing them. No, it's not. The, the trouble is, whoever cares the most wins. And on this subject, mm. the fanatics care more than the liberal establishment do in Western European countries. Um, and the, the, the geopolitics, um, obviously, uh, this year has been about the war between uh, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and NATO accession for uh, for Sweden and Finland, and there's been this huge row about Quran burnings in Sweden. And I gather as well that there's been a, a sort of upsurge in applications by protesters to burn the Quran in Sweden, which has been you know, the last thing the Swedish government has needed. So there's internal domestic politics, there's the politics of uh, community cohesion or lack of it, and there's the geopolitical dimension to all of this. But the bottom line has to be that we must care more about this issue and about protecting freedom of speech than the fanatics care about stopping it and shutting it down, even if that means defending something that I think most literate people would regard a book burning as being something that is extremely undesirable and connected with, as I said, the worst episodes of European history. Well, there's the other question, have we already lost um, Ben, I, I was looking at our casework, and 
it's quite an interesting mixture of types of cases. We, so we, we, we classify our cases relating to religion into the type of religion that they relate to. So we've got a, a category for Islam, we've got a category for Christianity, and we've got a category for other, because generally we don't have that many uh, cases relating to things other than Christianity and Islam. We have twice as many cases relating to Islam than we do to Christianity. And the direction of travel in those cases is also diametrically op opposed. I'll start with the Christian one because I think it's really interesting. But the largest segment of Christian cases, the, they relate to um, an argument with the church itself. So we're now finding that Christians are getting into trouble for holding orthodox beliefs or being public about orthodox belief, and they're getting into trouble with the church, which I think is an interesting situation. <laughs> so the direction of travel there is you get in trouble for holding orthodox Christian beliefs. The direction of travel with the Islam cases is you get in trouble for opposing things to do with Islam. So you get in trouble, for example, for mocking the Prophet Muhammad or having a, a film that arguably insults the Prophet Muhammad or you something to do with criticizing the religion and there the largest segment isn't um, isn't sort of Islamic organizations it's actually the police and that struck me and then the second segment for Islam is political parties and that's where I think well have we lost it or have we lost the, the, the battle already Ben because if it's the police coming after people for various types of criticism of Islam, and if it's political parties disciplining their own for criticizing Islam, those I would think were the two vehicles, if we are truly a, a country with no blasphemy laws, those would be two key vehicles for ensuring that we really don't have blasphemy laws. I think particularly through the working of the police and political parties, you can see again this idea that's not mine originally of modern Britain as being a country that's governed like an empire with national and religious, ethnic and indeed uh, gender and sexual minorities, where the onus is not on protecting the rights of individuals to their, what we now call their human rights. Um, in, a, in, a, in a liberal model, it's now about protecting the privileges, the particular privileges of individual communities and groups and then about enforcing peace and tranquility between those groups and we saw this i think with the wakefield case with the police attending that blasphemy show trial which i don't think is a meritocratic way of describing it after uh, after that autistic schoolboy kicked well no he didn't kick so he likely scuffed by accident a copy uh, of the quran his own copy of the quran um, and he had a non-crime hate incident recorded against him for that. Um, and I think in those episodes, we can see how <clears throat> we've moved from a liberal individual model to this communitarian one. Mm. 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 And, and so when we ask the question, have we already lost the battle or even what's, <laughs> what's the point of fight? We have to fight for, for, for blasphemy laws to remain off the statute books Clearly, because that, that's putting our arms up and saying, okay, we've lost. And I think that's, that's where I come to land with the, and it's not the UK, then, you know, obviously we're talking Denmark here. We're talking about new laws coming in to, to effectively stop Quran burning and to protect religious texts. I think that given where we are already with very, very limited free speech in practice around Islam in particular, we really can't cede any more ground. We really can't cede any more ground. Well, appeasement it has its own it has its own logic and its own momentum. And once you say burning this particular book is prohibited, why stop there? Why are cartoons of Muhammad still permitted? Because they are, for want of a better word, at least as incendiary as burning a copy of the Quran. So these things have their own propulsive force. Momentum. Yeah. yeah. And we remember the day after the uh, Charlie Hebdo murders, the next edition, it wasn't the day or the week, it was the week after the Charlie Hebdo murders, the next edition of the Charlie Hebdo magazine republished the, the cartoon of Muhammad on the, uh, on the front of that magazine. And it was very telling, I thought, because I heard someone being interviewed 
I think you were, I, I don't know whether it's the BBC, and it was some, some journalist was interviewing, they said, did, did you really need to do that? And straight out of the gate, they said, of course we did. Of course yeah. we did. If we really mean it, if we really mean that we care about free speech, we had no choice. We had to republish that cartoon. Not to, re not to republish it would have been to say, we, we surrender. Uh, because we, we are then saying free speech is not, is not um, worthy, a worthy value in our society anymore. And again, we immediately had that battle between an establishment that said, well, you know, as you say, an empire establishment in effect, saying, well, isn't it better to keep the peace? Surely, yep. surely it's always Pax Britannica. Surely Pax Britannica is what matters. Uh, well, sometimes no. Sometimes there are more important principles that are at stake. And, and I thought that was a really interesting moment straight after the Charlie Hebdo atrocities. One final thing I'd say for now on this topic is that thinking back to Shari Hebdo in the aftermath of that and the Je suis Shari hashtags and uh, statements that everyone left, right and centre, or almost everyone seemed to be putting out at the time. Mm. I think at, at that point, at that moment, the West could still credibly say that freedom of speech is non-negotiable and it's a fundamental core value. It's a pillar of our civilization and our way of life. It's not something that we'll ever negotiate over. The trouble now, a decade hence, is that it's free speech, but with lots of carve-outs about EDI, now about carbon literacy, about trans, about race, about Black Lives Matter, and about all of these, these forbidden topics. Um, and so it's very difficult to say with a straight face that freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, that these are intrinsic, non-negotiable values, pillars of Western civilization, because we have allowed them to decay and there is a a much to be regretted and lamented process of erosion that's been going on so i think I, th th there's no simple straightforward answer to to the question of uh, freedom of speech and islam and quran burnings and muhammad cartoons that's something that's i'm afraid is going to go on and on and on but some of the relatively low hanging fruit is getting our own house in order and ensuring that people can speak their minds about all the topics that, that we're talking about every week. It feels like guerrilla warfare at the moment. Yes. Rather than, uh, it feels like we're, we're, we're fighting in the jungles and uh, in the plains, jumping out of, jumping out of hedges uh, to make a win or two and then, and then go back. And, and I'm hoping that at some point we can actually open up a, a real front uh, that has some depth to it where we can, yeah, we can make real progress and fight back because we have to we have to fight well on that note i think that's goodbye from us tom yes thank you to everyone for listening and um do as a, one last thought is do let us know if you see any trends or spot any things a bit like the carbon literacy training that we spoke about earlier which you think it would be worth our investigating we're always looking into these sorts of things uh, so do let us know about that but yeah thank you everyone for listening and we will be back again this time next week until next time goodbye